I actually believe you and I have crossed paths way back when. So I went to grad school in San Francisco and I swear I remember in class having a conversation about your 24 hour think thought piece. And I swear, I remember seeing one of the cards that a friend of mine, uh, another graduate student bought from the gallery. So like, I've known you for a long time as far as your work. Yes, that was back in, I think, the year 2000. So I know I've I mean, I've been aware of you now. I don't believe we've ever met, but I've been aware of you and your work for many, many years at this point. Hmm. Sounds like you've been aware of me and my work, maybe even longer than I've been aware of myself. You're you're, you're a very interesting man. I mean, I love your work. OK, I think it's fascinating in the way that you choose and I, and I'm trying to figure out, like, I, w I was writing some notes down before we got started, trying to figure out, like, are you intentionally trying to be like a protagonist, an antagonist, or like, what are you, what is your, what are you trying to achieve through these? Because everything you do, like, breaks a system. <laughs> I think that I'm trying to understand for myself how, how systems work and more broadly, how the system works, which is really this set of interdependencies that are operating without anybody in charge, sorry, QAnon, and also without anybody really having thought it through. So what I think I most want to try to do for myself and ideally with others and for all of us is to try to understand those operating systems that are latent and that we take for granted, to question them, and then to try to figure out what we would want to do differently. Because only if we are aware of the systems that we've taken for granted in the past, and only if we have gone through the hard work of asking what sort of systems we want to live with, and what sort of systems we want to create, can we ever even begin the process of developing those alternative systems, dismantling the systems that are currently antagonistic to humanity and to all the other species and to the planet as a whole? So it's not very ambitious, I guess. Not at all. No, very simple task. But okay, how did you come to this? Like, I mean, I know you have a degree in philosophy, but even going farther back than that, were, were your parents sort of interested in this kind of stuff? Like, how did you even come into this sort of thought pattern and sort of methodology for, a, a, I call it a career? Would you call it, you have an, uh, do you have an, what would you call yourself these, yourself these days? An author, a, uh, an artist, a hybrid? Uh, what's your self-definition these days? I've come to refer to myself as an experimental philosopher. And the reason that I've chosen that as a job title is that it has no job description, or rather any description that happens to be what I'm doing right now seems to work as well as any other. So I like the fact that I don't really know what I do, because that would be a system in its own right that would prevent me from doing what I need to do or what I discover I want to do from one day to the next. So it's a term that I plundered from history. There were in the past 
before there were scientists, before that term had been coined, there were natural philosophers, but they were sometimes referred to as experimental philosophers. And when I first read that, I realized that that mapped on to at least it sounded like what I'd been doing for a very long time. In terms of my training, such as it is, it was in philosophy. And in terms of what I've done subsequently, it has been to flee the system that trained me and to smuggle whatever tools, whatever ideas seemed most relevant or interesting to be able to bring those into contexts that were off limits within the academic setting. But to go back, because I think that that's what you're asking for, I guess that the only qualification I have for anything that I do is that I'm curious. I think that maybe second to that is that I have expertise in nothing. So therefore, I don't come with any of the burdens that come from expertise. And that is partly out of negligence, but I think it's a negligence by design. And I first found myself doing what I do right now. If I look backward, probably as a child, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what my father did for a living. He was a stockbroker. It was completely baffling. I mean, the kids whose fathers were garbage men or whose fathers were truck drivers. I mean, first of all, I, I envied that because those were the sorts of jobs that I would have liked to have had as a child. But also, I could understand what they did. Whereas there was this abstraction to what my father did that I think I really struggled to understand. And so one of the first projects that I undertook, whether you want to call it an artwork or a thought experiment or an undertaking, and I have no idea whether I am an artist. I don't think that it really makes much difference. I think that what matters most is to remain curious about everything. So it was an act of curiosity. It was an act of trying to do what it seemed he did. So I sold rocks. I sold them without anything different, special, anything at all to distinguish the rocks I was selling in relation to all the other rocks that were around me. And I still remember, or at least I, I believe that I remember, I've led myself to believe it at least, that I set up a table in the driveway of the suburban house where I live around seven years old or so. Nobody ever went up or down that street, so there wasn't a lot of business. But there were a lot of rocks. And I guess we had a card table, one of those fold-out card tables that I set up and put some rocks onto the table and offered them to anybody who would buy them for one cent. And so the way in which I now look at that is that I was trying to figure out what value is, what money is, what it does, how we create, how we build a system that becomes capitalism, I guess, or that, that more broadly is the basis for any economy. The, the trade of commodities where value is established through some sort of abstraction, that being money, in this case being 
a trivial amount, one cent. But I think that the fact that it was a trivial amount, that I wasn't trying to earn a dollar or anything that was meaningful. And I never liked gumballs. So it was definitely not about being able to cash in at the gumball machine. Well, I, I think that I probably earned, if earn is the right word, on the order of three or four cents as a result of that project. And that typically is about as much as I earn on any of the projects that I do even today. That was, however, for me at the time, a way in which to be able to try to understand trade, which would include the stock market. Though I don't think that I was able to come up with any grand economic theories then, and I'm not sure that I really could do so today. It was a way in which to grapple with what I was observing through enacting it in terms that simplified it, that made it so simple that even I could understand it, and that ideally made it so simple that people who thought they understood what the stock market was or what trade was or what the economy was, that they would be taken aback by something so simple and where all the stakes that were motivating activity in the stock market, namely the possibility of making or losing money, all those were removed from this proposition so that it was just the activity in its own right, stripped bare. So I guess that that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. And I certainly didn't think of it in the terms that I've just described. And yet when I look at everything that I do to this day, if I'm doing my job as an experimental philosopher, if I'm, if I'm getting it right, if I'm satisfied at the end of the day with what I have done, it is as simple as that and as meaningful as that. But then of course you go to grade school and high school and high school, I was able to learn some trades in a very rudimentary way. I went to a high school that still had the machine shop set up from many decades past. So I was able to learn how to make things and already had that inclination. And that I think really confirmed my commitment to tangibility. Then when I went on to college and decided to study philosophy, I wanted to figure out how the experiential and the tangible might be applied in relation to the intellectual and ultimately this extremely abstract space that in my case, because I went to a school where analytic philosophy was favored, it meant studying formal logic and other aspects that were really abstruse and also were largely inaccessible to most people. But most people can afford to spend a penny and buy a rock. Not many people can understand what you're talking about when you start to get into the, uh, the niceties of Rudolf Carnap. To me, that was a problem because what I was interested in, what I remain interested in is these big questions that require rigor, but that require broadness in terms of all of the facets that are inherent to those questions, because these systems are diffuse and all are interrelated, but also that require the participation of everybody in terms of trying to sort things out. 
for, I guess, for two reasons, at least one of which is that I don't really know anything. And together, we know quite a lot, but we really need to have the right space in which that can come out into the open. But also because all of us need to be in on that conversation in order for any of us to be invested in the consequences or in the results of the conversation that we might have, the exploration that we might undertake. For me to explore, discover on my own some hidden deep flaw in the Constitution that leads to all evil in the world, that probably wouldn't be very helpful ultimately in terms of being able to enact change because well, anybody who paid any attention would just say, you know, well, there's that charlatan with some notion and it clearly doesn't mean anything in my life and why should I believe it anyway? Whereas if we can undertake this discovery process together, then we're all invested in it and we all have reason to trust and believe the the, the results of the investigation. I love it. So these days, I know you are a writer. Have you been doing art criticism? Did I see that? Yes, I have written art criticism now for 25 years. I mean, it was all a mistake, really. There was a magazine called San Francisco Magazine where I was on staff. And we restructured the magazine and restructured it in a way that we realized that we had created space for an art critic and that we didn't have one. And so I thought that that sounded like something that maybe potentially I could approach in some completely roundabout way, since in philosophy, one of the areas that most interested me was aesthetics. I had approached aesthetics in terms of, I already was, I guess, rebelling, for lack of a better word, even when I was in college. And I, I do not have an advanced degree, by the way. I left philosophy as soon as I graduated college. I felt that I had plenty to work with and that any more actually would be counterproductive. But even while I was in college, I decided that what I wanted to do as a senior thesis in philosophy, since I decided that aesthetics was what I was going to concentrate on, was not to write about aesthetics, but to enter into the realm directly. So I wrote a novella as my senior thesis, which of course the philosophy department couldn't abide. So therefore I had to create my own department, uh, my own interdisciplinary studies program, which I called the aesthetics program. I was the one and only person ever to go through this program. And it involved taking what I had been studying also in terms of art history, which I'd always been interested in, and combining that with what I was learning from aesthetics. So I took that into the magazine world, which was, of course, a total disaster when I started out by writing a review of an SF MoMA exhibition that was, I think, a wall drawing by Saul LeWitt. And I just decided that Saul LeWitt, who is somebody who I deeply, deeply admire with his sentences and paragraphs on conceptual art in particular, that I could kind of 
I guess, up the ante with what I wrote about him. Therefore, I could write something that was even less appropriate for a general interest city magazine than if we had just gone ahead and published his sentences or paragraphs on conceptual art on their own. So several rounds of battle with various editors resulted in something that passed for a review that people might actually read. And I discovered that actually I I rather liked that. What I liked most, I think, was that I could use art criticisms a way in which to encounter and engage art and bring other people through that process alongside me through what I wrote, where what I wrote and what I write today still in no way is meant to be authoritative, but rather is meant to be one of many possible paths through a work that, or a body of work that seems interesting. Now, every now and then, of course, it seems like it's a great opportunity to knock down something that is catastrophic and that really needs to be taken to task, uh, commodification of art and these sorts of phenomena. So definitely worth taking advantage of that platform for those purposes. But for the most part, what I did as the art critic for San Francisco Magazine for quite a long time, and what I've done since then, currently writing for Forbes Online, writing an art column, has been to keep myself fully engaged because I find that writing is a way in which to be fully engaged in the work that I'm looking at, the work that I'm reading about, the work that I'm thinking about, and also to facilitate some sort of a dialogue from the perspective of what I see to be most important in terms of what art is and what it can do. And to the extent that what I do is art, what I see as my own work, which is that it is a way in which to consider who and what we are and what we might make of ourselves and what might become of us within this world that we live in. That art has this privileged position of being trivial by most standards. As a result, is not invested in anything that anybody cares enough about to stop the artist from doing something interesting. I guess that if you are building a house or something of the sort, there are all sorts of constraints, regulations, and rightly so from the standpoint of the fact that you don't want to have that house collapse. But art doesn't have any of that in the way of constraints. Though I do think that art can be more dangerous than any house or any other structure that we build where we're doing so according to a set of of, of rules and regulations because art doesn't have rules or regulations and therefore it is truly capable of, of, of doing anything. That said, I think that art has generally not done much of anything and has taken the mantle of triviality in exactly the wrong way. I mean, to be trivial in my mind, it's an opportunity to be subversive in the broadest sense of the word, to be able to get away with all sorts of things that nobody else can because nobody is paying attention until they are. However, I think that what has happened for the most part is that the art world has perceived art as a sort of a sideshow to society more broadly, partly having been convinced by and partly convincing everybody else that that is the case. 
So it becomes mutually reinforcing conditions. And that that has led to an abdication of responsibility, potential power to be had, to be found in powerlessness. The powerlessness is where I think art potentially has its leverage. If the powerlessness is simply taken to be impotence in the sense that all art can do is to report on art or to make money, which has nothing really to do with art, except in the rare circumstances where the art is examining economic systems, then I think there really is not much to be said. And we can move on to the next subject. But I do think that there's a lot of opportunity within art. And to come back around to criticism, I feel like a large part of what I try to do is to find the work that seems interesting or to find interest in work that maybe was not meant to be interesting in the way that I find things interesting and to forefront my interest in that work as a way in which to forefront ideas that I want to explore. So in a sense, art, like everything else, is raw material for creating circumstances for discovery, for exploration, for investigation and interrogation. And yet probably not as interesting in a lot of ways as everything else for the fact that art is already halfway there toward self-investigation, whereas so many of the systems that we operate under, technology, religion, and so forth, are working without any sort of introspection, any sort of self-investigation. And so while I enjoy writing art criticism, and I hope that it is of some use or of some interest to others, I spend most of my time making trouble in other realms. Speaking of making trouble, I love your whole approach about the issues of commodification of the arts world, because that's one of my biggest peeves about it. But I mean, yes, there's al money always makes it go around. Money has always been involved, whether it was patronage or whatever throughout history. And it sort of has to be involved to a certain extent. But the extreme nature to which it has become such a commodity and such a money laundering scheme and all these other kinds of tax evasions and other ways that you know oligarchs are using it these days it sort of has in turn then manifested because now the younger generation are thinking that it, like it's that that that's the purpose of art is to make money instead of to make ideas and to make change and to make uh, you know thought and all this and so like I'd like to hear a little bit about like what you think about the issue of that balancing act of like creating objects, because I know you do make some objects versus like the nature of like artistic and creative thought and sort of what's the importance of both or neither. So for me, the reason to make objects and don't tell my gallerist this is not to sell them. And he has witnessed firsthand for 15 years that actually selling anything that I make is more or less a fool's errand. I have seen objects as tangible means for people to come together around ideas in some sort of 
embodied sense. I think that for me, the historical precedent is not the painting or sculpture, but is the philosophical instrument, the philosophical toy even, is the orrery or these devices that were created for natural philosophers to be able to model world systems as they understood them and to consider the implications together. So when you build an orrery, basically you're building a model solar system and you're building it like clockwork. And it's a way in which you are positing a clockwork universe in tangible form that clarifies that idea of what a clockwork universe is. And also, I think, potentially problematizes it. And I I don't know of any historical investigation in this realm. I think it'd be interesting to look at to what extent when people were making orreries, armillary spheres, and these various other devices, which certainly were being used for purposes of doing astronomy. Often when you make a device, it is a way in which to be able to explore your hypotheses. And also it becomes a calculating device where you can put it into fast forward and see what is going to happen in the future, potentially. I think that that clearly resulted in some recognition of where the clockwork was not doing what was observed in the universe, or in other words, Copernican revolution. But I think that also it's interesting to think about it in terms of where the clockwork got gummed up, where the clockwork mechanism broke, and whether there was any breakage in terms of faith in clockwork universe or in this mapping of man in relation to nature as being a kind of version and miniature of God in relation to man. So to what extent is there some sort of an existential crisis within religion that happens as a result of some sort of a problem that you're having technically with your equipment? have absolutely no idea what I'm going to say and delighted to be nudged in one way or another by myself saying something and then having to think about, well, what are the implications of that? I, yeah, I've, and I end up, of course, learning things that I never even knew that I needed to know, like, you know, because we end up going down a path that like it was mm. something that was completely off my radar that I was suddenly like, oh, my God, I should have been thinking about this thing that never even entered my mind until you just brought it up. So that's what I like. Yeah, I mean, it. if I can come away from an interview, I, I mean, what I was just saying a moment ago about orreries, I never thought about that before. <laughs> so I'm grateful for the opportunity to for this blather to lead to some new some new way of thinking that might lead to some new project who knows should i start recording again i did start recording yeah i saw that so i was thinking that maybe i should as well yeah 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 i i like to always be recording just in case because a lot of times some of the great conversations happen between things then you end up with the andy warhol situation yeah too much content (laughs) <laughs> well, no, he actually was walking around with a tape recorder 24 hours a day. and Yeah, I know. I love it. Yeah. 
I'm a big, I'm in many ways, I'm a big fan of the theory of Andy Warhol. And that's about as far as mm-hmm. I'm going to go with that. But I mean, he was a, te- he was a c- talented businessman, a great brand and, and his, his concepts were great. Now is his work like the pinnacle of art for that era? I'm not sure about that, but I do admire his concepts greatly. Yes, likewise. I, I do as well. And it is a way in which this phenomenon of commodification, which was in his time already very much in place, but which was becoming more and more the driving factor of the art world. He has this ambivalent position where he was asking, I think, some of the most trenchant questions about commodification, even as his process of asking those questions through what he made resulted in an even more powerful connection between art and commodity. And, you know, that to me is a real concern in terms of any of the undertakings. And I don't claim to have the genius of Andy Warhol, the reach of Andy Warhol or anything else. But I do think that when a proposition is put out in the world, there is the possibility of using that as leverage to be able better to understand ourselves and our assumptions. But there also is a possibility that what was a hypothesis that was a basis for that investigation turns into a product or turns into a a system that is in its own right running out of control and becomes predominant. And so there's a way in which I think that Warhol was asking some of the most important questions of his time in terms of art and in terms of markets more broadly. But he had the impact where his questioning was not taken in the spirit of questioning, but actually was taken in the spirit of answering themselves in the affirmative, the questions that he was asking. And of course, he's an ambiguous figure in terms of the degree to which he was a businessman versus an artist and whether in fact he really was asking those questions for the sake of trying to explore what the meaning of art is or whether it was asking those questions in the sense that he was actually just trying to make more money as a result of being the one asking those questions and also as a result of the work that he was creating. I don't think we'll ever really know. I don't think that it really matters. I do think, though, that it is an interesting cautionary tale for the rest of us. The thing that I always took away from him was the his sort of philosophy of wanting to make a thousand pieces of art and sell them for one dollar instead of one piece of art for a thousand dollars because it it also breaks down the elitist nature of the you know the high-priced high-valued stuff which in all ironies of ironies his work is some of the most expensive work on the market these days so that he he tried intentionally to break a system and unfortunately he became the the uh, the figurehead of a system Well, I I think yes and no, because I think that, so take his diptych portraits where you could pay double the amount 
I think it was double. It may have, it may have given you a slight discount if you wanted to have your silkscreen portrait as a diptych where the other panel might just be a blank panel. At the time, these were serious money. He was certainly, at least early on, he was making art more accessible. And also the ways in which he started to work within film and dissolve some of the barriers between different art forms, they certainly were taking art in that direction. But he also was building systems as a way in which to question them. Because to me, it seems almost unfathomable that he was playing it straight when he said, I'll give you your portrait for this amount of money, or I'll give you a diptych where you also get a blank panel that is going to go on the wall right next to it for twice that amount or whatever the additional cost was. I find it hard to believe that he was doing that without at least some sense of the absurdity of the proposition. The absurdity was, I think, a way in which to question a lot of the ways in which value obtains in commodities. But what resulted from that experiment was a lot of work that is extraordinarily valuable according to how the market works and also precedents that have allowed other artists to exploit the system in those ways and have distorted the system such that most people getting into art think that that's what it's about. They don't recognize the absurdity, but rather see the opportunity by taking literally what was meant to be a meta-level critique or at least a sort of a questioning of the system. So that's always a danger. I mean, any thought experiment is always in danger of being taken not as an experiment or as an investigation, but actually being turned into a new system. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was saying about Andy Warhol. I mean, I think that his belief system sort of got turned around on him and he's now, you know, his pieces now go for millions of dollars when that was sort of potentially not his original intention. Yeah, I think that his intention was to make hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe not millions, but his intention also was to show the system for what it was. So he wanted it both ways, perhaps. He wanted to a lot of things both ways. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He wanted to be a, a public figure, but he also wanted to be enigmatic. He wanted to be known, but he was a very private person. I mean, he was just a walking enigma, uh, you know, all around in, in both business and his personal life, which, again, I love about him. I think that personal contradictions are what make for an interesting character in general. I think that generally the most creative or the most innovative or the most penetrating figures in terms of thinking about the world or doing something that is different from how things have been done in the past are always operating from some position or usually operating from some position of internal contradiction. Agreed. Proving that may be difficult, but I, I, that's my intuition is that it comes out of this internal tension, this ability to place yourself in tension with some other facet of yourself that allows for some sort of escape from any given selfhood and the complacency that that entails. 
I agree. I love it. I mean, I often mock myself by saying that I'm like a walking contradiction about many different aspects in my life. Like I, I will believe one thing and the opposite simultaneously and I enjoy it. So I'm on your side, but I wanted, I yes. wanted to ask about, um, you wrote a book about forgery and, and I love the topic because actually I've already had two, well, one for sure art forger on the podcast and one potential art forger. Uh, and I love the whole thing about the nature of forgery because you sort of posited that, that they should be admired in their own right, correct? Yes. It, as any of my ideas, it is complicated or convoluted. Take your pick. But it is definitely not the straightforward proposition that forgers are better artists than artists who don't undertake forgery, which generally gets understood as a sort of conservative stance that all this newfangled abstraction is some sort of degenerate art that really the only people who should be considered artists are those who are classically trained and able to perfectly according to some system that we take to be the standard that they can perfectly depict a landscape or undertake a portrait. What I am arguing in that book, and I still believe it to be the case at least several days of the week, and here we are in the realm of self-contradiction and the ability to have multiple positions that may be at odds with each other. But the position taken in the book is that art is in the business of questioning, and that that has, in terms of how art has operated under the modernist regime, has been at its best undertaken in terms of bringing us to a state of crisis in relation to what we took for granted. In other words, art is about bringing us into a state of anxiety where we start to question ourselves. And that a painting such as The Scream is doing that in a way that is really powerful, but nevertheless is depictive and also is within conditions that are highly controlled such that we can have that experience, but the experience is in its offset in quotation marks. And that if art is really to do this work of bringing us into a state of crisis in order then for us to think through what needs to change or what isn't working even just at the more basic level, that art needs to be feral, that it needs to not be limited to the museum and gallery setting and those audiences, but to happen in the world in a way that is unavoidable. And that art forgers do this in terms of the scandal that ensues when they are caught. So an art forgery that has 
not been discovered or an art forger that is making these works that are commodities effectively that are selling under the names of others. That to me is not really interesting. What's interesting is when the forger gets found out and the systems that the forger was exploiting, such as systems of authority, which often results in people assuming that somebody else must know and therefore not actually looking or thinking for themselves. When those systems are broken by that act of duplicity, they break through all of our defenses because it actually happened. And we have to contend with the consequences. We have to contend with something that happened in the world, where the world is really the space in which the forger is acting as an artist and doing so, generally speaking, doing so inadvertently. All the forgers who I have looked at are, I believe, and there are exceptions in terms of how some of these forgers have considered themselves as their careers as forgers have evolved, uh, Eric Hebern being one example of this, Tom Keating being another. But for the most part, the forgers are most interesting not for anything that they're trying to do, but for what happens when what they most want to avoid takes place. Namely, they're found out and the systems that they were exploiting are found out to be exploitable. And the exploits are telling us a lot about the world in which we live. I, I'm not encouraging artists to do something illegal. I'm not encouraging art as an act of fraud, but rather saying that I think that art needs to break free of the art world, the museum gallery complex and all that, in order for art to have that sort of relevance and traction and to affect real change by bringing people to a recognition of all the ways in which the systems that they are currently relying on an awareness of where those systems perhaps are not internally consistent or fully thought through. When it comes to art forgers, well, I mean, part of the thing starts to end up being an original piece of art is admired, respected, and theoretically valued because of the intention of the original artist. Whereas a forgery is a, a skill and a craft to be able to copy uh, uh, somebody else or mimic or do an homage of or whatever. But it then becomes the question of like, is the original sort of artistic concept, is it so much more valuable than a skilled craftsman who's been able to basically duplicate the aesthetics of something? Well, in terms of financial value, financial value is what financial value is. And so rarity is something that people crave. And is the basis of how our economic system works. I mean, in a sense, the job of the Federal Reserve is to ensure that money is more scarce than the paper on which it's printed. That's where money gains its value. So to the extent that we are valuing or evaluating art on the basis of money, it makes sense that something that is unique and by some artist who has clout, that those would be factors that would lead to it being more valuable than a copy of it that could be one of an infinite number of copies 
by somebody who inherently doesn't have clout because that person has made him or herself invisible. But I don't think that that is really what is interesting about art. That's what's interesting about commodities. And commodities are interesting as anything is in our world in the sense that they are a part of our world and their significance is something that we need to take into account in terms of understanding our world. But where art operates as art, as opposed to operating as the equivalent of a poker chip, that is not going to necessarily be lesser or greater as a result of something being the original or being a perfect copy or an imperfect copy or a reproduction in a magazine or a newspaper. So I think that what we need to do is we need to back up and ask, what is it that we're getting out of this work? Is it the fact of its being unique that is of interest? And there certainly are ways in which conceptually to consider the phenomenon of uniqueness as a way in which to think about anything from economics to quantum physics. However, there are a lot of other things that an artwork can do. And so to come back around to the screen, and there's more than one version of that that Munch painted, and there also are numerous forgeries, probably more than we know. I would say that if there is a forgery of the scream that is in a museum somewhere, for example, that we don't know that it is a forgery, and if we are moved by it emotionally in a way that is equivalent to the way in which we are moved by an original, by a work that he created himself, then by that standard, there's no reason to differentiate. The canvas and the paint on that canvas, these are delivery mechanisms. These are This is a technology for delivering an experience where that experience is equivalent in both cases. And if the experience is equivalent, then if what we're interested in is the experience, it makes no difference whether it is the original, the copy, or the version that you get to see when you Google it. So I think we need to back up and ask, what is it that we actually are what is it that we actually want? What is it that, that we're seeking in the work of art? Agreed. And I love that you're using the scream. Uh, Edward Munch is one of my favorite artists. Uh, he impacted me in my youth greatly. And so I love that you're using him as an example. And of course, when you see the scream in person, it, it really is more powerful than seeing it on your computer screen because there are qualities to that work that are inherent to the paint and inherent to the materials that are part of how our sensory system receives it and how we experience it. That said, there's no reason why somebody couldn't come along and come up with another version of it that is not simply providing a representation of it by taking a digital photo and putting it online, but is enhancing what a computer screen can do phenomenologically to give an experience that is not the experience that Munch was attempting to give through that painting, but is an experience that could arguably be 
even more powerful or effective, especially for us in the here and now, where screens are really so prevalent in our lives and where we are more accustomed to the vernacular of the screen than of the canvas. Yes. I mean, I'm, I saw Scream in real life, and I believe in the exhibition I saw, they actually had three versions of Scream uh, in the exhibition, and there were all kinds of things and subtle details. Like, I remember being able to see a print, uh, I think it was a woodblock print of it also at the Smithsonian, and I was able to, like, look on the back of the paper because it was in their their library. And, I mean, just the some of the, the handwritten stuff and the subtle details just made it so much more uh, impactful to me for my future career because of course this was back when I was in high school when I saw this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there are there are qualities that certainly were not intended by Munch that become qualities that are really salient. I mean especially when you think about inherent vice in terms of for instance the work of Eva Hesse. Much of what is I think so evocative about that work now which pertains to how the work evokes fragility, a lot of that fragility has come about not because she was trying to make the work that we're seeing right now, but because the materials she used became what they are. And the work has matured in a sense and isn't better or worse for it, but is different and is great for what it is today. Well, I mean, the the nature of like archival materials and trying to use the best stuff. Like I come from a photography background where, you know, I was taught always to use the best materials whenever possible. But it, it, a lot of works, even if they use great materials, they're still going to degrade, of course, just because that's the natural way of things. But sometimes using non-archival and, and sort of intentionally uh, degrading materials can actually make a piece somehow have a, a much more interesting length of time because over time, if you see it later, it's going to look different, even though it's the exact same piece. And that gives a, a different impression. I mean, I can't tell you how many like Jasper Johns and some other works that I've seen that I'm like, oh, it's really flat and, and a lot of the colors lost and it's a totally different image. Like, if I saw it in person now versus uh, the original images and the original documentation of it when it was first created. Right. And I think that artists and others, and we're all artists, so there are no others, and not only humans in terms of that equation, I think that we can engage that creatively if we choose to. So it's absolutely legitimate to try to make something that is thing that comes at the end of that process that we've undertaken, where that is that thing at the utmost and the wear and tear of time are going to diminish what the artist is trying to articulate, might result in something more interesting than the artist could ever have imagined. But nevertheless, it's completely legitimate for an artist to create something and to say, this is what I wanted to make and for all to behold it, and I guess for the market to take it away. But I think that it's equally legitimate for an artist to take the inherent vice as a collaborator and to think about how the work will degrade, both in terms of what can be anticipated and also in terms of what cannot be anticipated. You can emphasize one or the other or both, I guess. 
but to take that as being part of the work in its own right, that the work only happens over time, through time, that the work might only be at some point in the distant future, or that the work might be at various stages along the way, various versions of itself, where you can look at the total product being that transition, or you can say that each encounter with it is an encounter with a separate work, and that it is, in fact, an infinite number of works, each one of which gets to be experienced exactly once. Yeah, when I was in school, it was when uh, the the, Dar- the Starnes twins, uh, Doug and Mike Starnes, were doing their intentionally uh, poor crafted, or not poorly crafted, but like using materials that would intentionally degrade so quickly that museums had to repurchase the work again in order to get it visible again. And I just loved that whole ethos of of you know making work that was intended to n- basically never be seen in its its original inception ever again or the uh, contrary position to that which it's interesting to see how this is not how the work is currently treated when rauschenberg created his white paintings the stipulation was when they got dirty you would just repaint them keep them white well no museum is doing that. And I think that Rauschenberg himself changed his position at some point along the way. I'm not certain about that, but certainly the way in which we look at the work now is we're looking at the effects of aging on the white surface. And I think that that instruction that he gave is, again, it's equally legitimate. And part of what I really admire about much of Yoko Ono's work is the fact that the instruction, or for that matter, Solowitz's work, that the instructions provide for a means by which the work is the same always. It's the Platonic form, or the closest that we can come to that, given that the heat death of the universe ultimately would burn up the instructions and the means by which to execute them, that there is still something that is essential where that essence is available through time. But then there is also the performance of that work that is different each time, which cuts against that. So that it remains the essence, but also remains essential because of that need for regular reenactment. And I like those paradoxes that emerge from what at the outset might seem like a relatively straightforward proposition and might seem like a good workaround in terms of inherent vice and in terms of the degradation of art over time, in terms of people in the future not seeing what the artist meant the work to be when it was made. All right. I've got a couple of little last things I want to try and squeeze in, though I don't think any of these conversations are going to be short. Okay, so you said... Yes, none of my, none of my sentences no, seem to be no, very it, short, so I guess that the conversations are not... It's perfectly fine. Don't stress over it. The But, like, okay, I'm, I've looked through, like, your Wikipedia page. I've done research on you, all this. You are super productive. You make so many things. And you talked about having a gallery that represents your physical objects and potentially even like your performances and things like this. How, how do you, do you make a living from be like creating these things? Do you get grants? I know you've even done things with SETI, which that's another question I want to have as well. I want to know more about that too. Sort of the nuts and bolts of like, do you 
make all of these things simply for the sake of making them? Or is there some sort of, uh, you know, business model you have for all this? Well, I found that it's necessary to maintain shelter and to have something to eat. So indeed, there is some grounding to all that I do in terms of how I can afford to do it. And the model is one of not knowing and persistently attempting to do absolutely everything and allowing for most things not to work out, but by sheer numbers, by the messy situation that I put myself in, that something or other seems to work out with enough frequency that grants and other sources of funding support my work as a whole. So in some cases, such as I am currently an artist in residence at the UC San Francisco Memory and Aging Center, in that case, they have grant money for an artist in residence. And so I am earning some of the money that I need to live on from that as a source. In the case of the University of Arizona, where I'm a research associate, we are pursuing grants that would fund work going forward if any of the granting institutions get around to seeing the wisdom of supporting it. For instance, I am also currently an artist in residence within Hyundai, the car company. And in that case, the corporation is paying part of my rent through the money that I earn for the time that I spend working on projects with them, where that can be seen as a sort of consultancy, but where we're working on projects that have equivalently large questions underlying them. And what I try to do is in every case to be clear about my motivations and to find different channels of support. And every now and then something does sell for typically a trivial amount of money. I'm completely with Warhol in terms of making a thousand works for a dollar. And I typically, in the case of the gallery setting, typically have a gallery show every year at Modernism. I will always have something available for people to buy for a trivial amount, $1, $5, maybe 10. And we'll always structure that on the basis of conceptually there being a reason why it has a price on it to begin with. But where a large part of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people to buy into the idea. There's a great difference between spending nothing and spending a dollar in terms of your buy-in in terms of the ideas, and likewise, a penny for a rock. So I think that I'm always exploring, always open to different systems that might be able to support what I do, but I'm absolutely insistent that, that I need to do what I'm doing. I'm absolutely convinced that I need to do what I'm doing. Writing also is a way in which I'm able to often support the research that underlies a lot of the work that I do. And I do see art criticism also as a way in which to make art in another form or to do the work of the experimental philosopher. And this is where I think the word art trips me up or where it gets in the way of things is that 
those definitions ultimately are not all that interesting. But to be able to pursue this activity that I call experimental philosophy, I feel like I can do that through books. I feel like I can do that through essays, and I can do that through objects, activities, all the rest. Teaching, which I do a fair amount now in terms of workshops. I just did one with the California College of the Arts, for instance, and seem to be doing those with greater and greater frequency. So I just say, I say yes to everything. Meaning I start out with these are the this is what I'm interested in and then put those ideas out in the world and figure there's a great attrition rate there. But whatever comes back my way in terms of the possibility that we might do it, I will say yes, even though it's utterly irresponsible because there are countless other things I should be working on and I can't possibly do it all at once. So I just let the chaos sort itself out. Okay, but I've got to know. So like you just said, you do a lot of grant writing and you're doing a lot of other projects and all this kind of stuff. And you have sort of um, fulfilled, like so you have created or manifested a large number of projects in your in your career. I was looking at, at some, I, I forget, I forget where it was. I was looking somewhere and I saw some, I want to say like they were like something like a time bricks or something like that. Oh, yes. That was uh, when I was applying relativity to time management. And so I was providing people with a way in which to, within their own personal space, by way of the massiveness of a bar of lead to have a time frame where time would be slightly dilated in relation to others and to have that slight advantage of greater longevity. I was looking at buying one of those, but I couldn't find sort of how to buy it or, or what the price was. Yes, I don't remember what the price is. That's always the problem is that's a part of this that I'm not very good at. The gallery certainly has them. So you're, the best option would be for me to put you in touch with them because if I try to find whatever I have in my storage unit, I will be excavating for a very long time. I think that one of the consequences of doing a lot all at once is having a lot of opportunities to explore really interesting ideas. But another consequence is that everything is in a state of ever-increasing entropy, and it really becomes impossible to sort through what came before. I mean, the archival process is a... It's a, it's a total disaster. <laughs> Maybe that's good because that, that makes the past more obscure more quickly and therefore keeps the focus moving forward. As most artists are very bad at that. Well, creative-minded people, I should say. Yeah, I think that the subset of people who are archivists and artists, probably that is not a huge part of the population. No. Now, okay, so the last little bit, because I know you have to go to this other meeting. So you said you write a lot of grants and you do a, you do a lot of these proposals and you've also, you've, you have achieved a, a number of exhibitions and done, created a lot of uh, objects and stuff. How, like, what's the percentage, like, of ideas that don't get manifested or grants that don't get, a, 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 you know, a funded? Because I'm always fascinated about how much time and effort we put into things as creative people that sort of never see the light of day or don't get, you know, created due to lack of funding or whatever, um, that end up sort of in the ether and that they don't uh, result in something, but they end up leading us down some other path that end up hopefully being more successful. 
I suppose that, it, that there are really two separate questions. One question is, yeah, sorry, what I was is a little the success rate on grants? No, it's not convoluted at all. I think that, that there are two questions that are very much interrelated. So it's interesting to consider them together. So one of them is, what is the success rate on grant applications? And I wouldn't say that it's in the negative digits, but <laughs> it's it, it definitely is a small enough percentage that I'm constantly scrambling. But I find that the ideas are never fixed until they are instantiated. And in fact, until they are out in the world where others are interacting with them and we're really exploring them together. So therefore, everything that was latent that might have gone into a grant application in terms of describing it remains latent indefinitely. So I don't think that there's ever a work that doesn't get made. It's simply that most works haven't been made yet and that the way in which they might be made in my lifetime or beyond, if they do get made, is not in a form that I can predict or imagine in the present. Oh, right. I, I do want to ask one last question, though, about SETI. I know you were doing some work with them. Are you still working with SETI? Yes, I am working on a very long-term project with them, which, again, is going to, in terms of stages of implementation, require outside funding and support. So with many of my projects, including this one, I try to find different levels at which the work can operate where I can scale according to resources, but where every scale is meaningful, at least from my standpoint, and where all of the different scales can interrelate, can interact, and can lead together to something more than the sum of the parts, so to speak. So very briefly, what I'm doing is looking at the Fermi paradox, which basically, well, there's a story. Enrico Fermi was back in 1950, having lunch with some fellow physicists, and they were talking about how the universe must be teeming with intelligent life. And Fermi asked, where is everybody? And so this has become a subject of great consternation in terms of trying to understand what is sometimes referred to as the great silence. Why has there not been contact? What might that mean? And one of the most interesting interpretations which by no means is right or wrong. We have at this stage no way of being able to, to evaluate between different hypotheses because we don't have the data. But one of them is what is sometimes called the great filter, that there is some threshold that civilizations, when they get to a level of complexity that they might be able to communicate across the cosmos or to travel, that that level of complexity somehow is self-defeating, leading to some form of internal collapse. And this was something that was posited during the Cold War that seems all the more plausible based on our sample size of one, planet Earth, as we look at mass extinction and climate change, that we are ourselves now able to reach out by way of radio signaling and also starting to send spacecraft beyond the solar system, that we are also potentially going to do ourselves in. So to me, this is really interesting, and I hope it is to others as well. And I believe that it actually is to all beings, any being anywhere in the universe. And perhaps the only thing that we can imagine that we're all interested in is survival 
how to thrive. So my thought is that looking at climate change, looking at nuclear annihilation, so these are multiple ways in which we can do ourselves in. Probably there are multiple ways well beyond that. And probably we get past some filters that may lie ahead for other civilizations elsewhere in the universe and vice versa. So why not share what we know? So the idea is to create what I call the Library of the Great Silence, which is basically a space in which to be able to exchange information about transformations without necessarily qualifying those as being positive or negative, but simply to be able to exchange that information with beings throughout the universe and initially with our fellow beings here on Earth, most likely because we're not aware of any beings from elsewhere that are presently on our planet. And to do so in a way that doesn't exclude, but actually is as inclusive as possible. So it's not a library in English. It's not even a library that is using language, which is... Uh, operating at a symbolic level. It's a library of things, objects that are implicated in transformations, which may range from the natural, the meteorite, to the hand axe, to plastics, trinitite. The idea is to collect these in a space and then to have means by which to explore their relationship to each other using simple machines. Basically, this set of machines that were in the Renaissance considered to be the elements of all machinery, such as a lever, the pulley, and these can represent relationships. So the idea is that this library is a space where relationships are represented collectively in order to be able to explore transformations and to be able to understand phenomena such as overreach and to grapple with them. Ultimately, I am looking to build a headquarters on Mount Lassen, which is where the Allen Telescope Array is located, that is seemingly, at least from my standpoint, I think that if I were an extraterrestrial, I would take that as a tourist attraction. So it's a good place to build. But also I'm looking more immediately at places all around us where we can make branch libraries by just looking at the materials that we have around us that have this sort of quality that they are suggestive of transitions. So I'm doing that. I did the first of these in a temple that was dedicated to Jupiter that then fell to ruin that became a Catholic church that was then deconsecrated that in the Abruzzo region of Italy. So I'm looking at spaces to transition to work with people and to go places and do this. And so I'm looking to do this around the world as a way in which to start to establish the grounds for this library system. I would certainly invite on your side any thoughts about where you are that might contribute to this, not only in terms of objects, but places where we might be able to build a branch of this library. I would have to put a lot more thought into that. <laughs> but I love it. You, I just, just to be clear, I think what you do is magnificent. I love the, everything that you're about. And so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan, just a you know, fan boy here. Oh, so I want to just sort of throw that out there. So oh, thank that. you very much for taking the time to talk. And, uh, yes. and I hope to be able to reconnect with you sometime if I ever come and visit San Francisco, or maybe we can meet in Italy. I know you go to there quite frequently as well. Yes, absolutely. Or we can, you know, if we can bring a branch of the Library of the Great Silence to where you're living, then you're in Prague, which would be a great place, I think, to consider because there's so much that's so transitional. I mean, there's so much history there. So there is. Yeah. If you wanted to figure out how we could build a branch of the library there, a place that we might do so, then let's do it. All right. We'll, we'll, we're starting the conversation right now. We'll, we'll continue after this is over. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. All so, right. Great talking to you. I'd better go on to the next uh, yeah. conversation, but I look forward to more. 
All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. Please be sure to share this episode and the podcast as a whole with your friends, family, and coworkers. Because part of the intention of this is to help build a community of people that have similar knowledge and similar skills and that we can all do better in our careers than, well, than I did. And, and so learn from my mistakes and make better and try to build a community around all of this. So please, be, as I say, be sure to share with your friends because that would be greatly appreciated. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services. And the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool, an art podcast, is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website wisefoolpod.com.